Good evening, everybody. Uh, I was tasked with doing question 89. And the question is, what does, what does every sin deserve? And the answer given in the catechism is that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. So tonight's lesson is pretty straightforward. Uh, but I do think that there are some things that, um, that we can grasp out of that and kind of get a better picture of God through this. Uh, tonight's question and answer seems pretty straightforward, and I think it is. However, I would also like to include in my speaking of to this as to the why. Why does sin deserve death? We know that, that it does. Scripture is clear about that, but I want us to be able to think about the why as well, because I think that will draw us nearer to the Lord, understanding why exactly this this is. My hope is that as we look at the why, it gives us a deeper insight into how we can be more focused on obedience to God for our love of God rather than just out of obligation. So I know as people, there are times when we are obedient purely out of obligation, maybe out of obligation to the civil authorities. I might not go 80 in the Z3. I might stick to 65 or 70 because that is obedience to uh, the law, although it is fun to zip around in there. Okay. Uh, for some of us, it might be some other thing that we feel obligated to be obedient for. Um, but when it comes to obedience to the Lord, I would definitely like to see that we view that as something we're doing out of love for God rather than out of an obligation to him. It doesn't diminish the fact that we are obligated to obey, but doing doing our obedience out of a desire for it is a much better attitude for a Christian. I'd like to start this evening's sermon off with us looking at the account of Uzzah. Uzzah is an account of a man who to the unbeliever and even some believers seems to have been wrongly dealt with by God. Some even use this story as a charge against God that he is unloving and not worthy of their worship. Let me tell you from the beginning that this story, is, in fact, is evidence of a loving God. The story of Uzzah is not of a vengeful God murdering an innocent man, but rather a God who must punish sin because he is a loving God. How many of you guys have heard the story of Uzzah? No. Oh, the pastor raised his hand. That's good. <laughs> U-Z-Z-A-H. In order to better understand the story of Uzzah, we must set the story as well as understand the laws that God had put into place for the, for the movement of the Ark. So our story is going to focus around the Ark of the Covenant. And in order for us to have a good understanding of what exactly went on here and why Uzzah was punished for what he did, we need to kind of set the stage for that. David has just been installed as king over Israel. He has defeated the Philistines on two occasions shortly after. Everything is really going well for the nation of Israel at the moment. They're really flying high right now. You would think that on an earthly like scale, if you looked at them, you would say they are a rising nation. They have success. They have a good, strong, young leader who the people are behind, and they are having victories 
over their enemies. So looking around, you think, man, this is this is the place to be. This is the happening, forward-moving country that is on the path to success. Everything's really going well for them right now at the moment. This leads us from 2 Samuel 5, where we see um, David's installation and then his uh, some victories over the Philistines. And that leads us into uh, 2 Samuel 6, where we now see the story of Uzzah unfold. So 2 Samuel 6 begins, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all of the people who were with him from, from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio was before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So we have this scene, it's almost like a celebratory parade, um, the way that a conquering king would move his way into um, his capital to celebrate his victories. We can see that everybody's happy. They're dancing, which to me is already like, like that's out of line. But they're playing the musical instruments and they're reveling in their victory that they have had over the Philistines and everything's going well. And so they swing by and they're like, hey, let's get the ark. And let's bring it into Jerusalem and place it there. And so they, they get it. They put it on the cart. And as they're wheeling it in, it says that an ox stumbles. And Uzzah reaches out and puts his hand on the ark and is immediately killed by God. Many will look askance at Uzzah's death. They'll wonder, what's the big deal? Or... He did what he did because he loved God. The fact that we don't see this as the big deal that God did is because of our low view of his holiness. On the surface, we might empathize with Uzzah. How many of us have seen something fall and we reach out to try to grab it? Or you are fumbling with your phone and you drop it. You try to like kick it with your foot so that it doesn't hit straight on the ground. So we could see ourselves in his place doing what he did potentially. But hopefully as we continue down this discussion and we see just exactly what went wrong here, we can recognize even somberly that it cost Uzzah his life, that what God did was right and that what Uzzah did was wrong. We recognize and understand his desire to care for the ark, but that should never come at the expense of doing what we are commanded to do. 
The death of Uzzah is a culmination of layers of sin by the people, including Uzzah himself. So even as they were being blessed, as God gave them a good king, even as God gave them victory over the Philistines, what was going on here in getting the ark and bringing it into Jerusalem the way they did was sin. God gave the people of Israel very specific instructions when it came to the care of many of God's items he set apart for his worship. The Ark of the Covenant had very specific handling instructions. One of the things that I've been doing this year is listening to uh, the Bible on audiobook uh, and starting at Genesis and just working my way through. And in the past, I'd gotten bogged down when you get into um leviticus because it just seems like there's so many rules and there's so much blood and it i mean you want to read a book about blood you read through leviticus but at the end of it and i even mentioned to nick once and i was like man it was it's impossible for me now to not look at that book about how much god values his holiness and recognizing that when you see god laying out for his people how he wants to be viewed and how he wants to be worshipped and how seriously he takes his holiness and strives for his people to recognize that holiness. It really, really opens your eyes to a whole lot of things. And one of the things that God was very clear about when it came to his worship were the care for the things of God that were being used in that worship including the ark. God gave his people of Israel very specific instructions when it came to the care of those things. In Exodus 25, verses 12 to 15, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on. So it's describing here the creation of the ark of the covenant that God is going to place the Ten Commandments and some manna in, uh, and I think Moses' staff. But it is very, but God's being very specific about its creation and even down to the point of how will it go from place to place. God leaves nothing to chance. He's leaving nothing up for the Israelites to have to guess about what God wants. He gives Moses the exact instructions for both the creation and the care of his holy items. You shall cast two, uh, four rings of gold for it and put them on your on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from them. So God is, even in the creation of the ark, He's setting up the ability for the Israelites to carry it. We're going to see why that's so important. So he's got some uh, nice acacia wood that he then wraps in gold. And those can go in the rings. And it will allow those who have been who have been chosen to carry the ark, will allow them to hold on to the poles and carry the ark. So God is very clear about the purposes of those poles to them. This is not unknown. The Lord even gives Moses very clear instruction for the crafting of the ark, including crafting its handles by the Levites. 
later in Numbers 4, the Lord lays out to Moses just who is allowed to carry the holy items of God, including their packing instructions. The Lord goes on to offer a warning to the Levites not to touch the holy things for fear of death. So we move into Numbers 4. Again, I thought when I was going to work my way through Numbers 4 that it was going to be just so-and-so, had so-and-so, and it had so-and-so. But again, it was the, it was this beautiful tale of God laying out these things to a people group who are in wandering and him being very clear with how they are to live their lives and what they're to do and and how they are to be obedient to them or to him, excuse me. So in number four, in numbers four, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all of the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out after the sons of Kohath shall, shall, shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So this numbers four leading up through um, one through 15, God's being very precise with the people. Put these items on this colored cloth. Put these items on this goat skin under this cloth. And he's being very, very clear with these people, giving them overly explanatory um, directions on how he wants his things to be dealt with, to be cared for. And that is so that the people begin to see just how important God views his holiness and how much they should have a view for it. I, I'm a teacher. I've got 91 kids right now in three classes. And for the most part, when I want them to get me something or to do something, they'll just grab it. They'll just do whatever with it. They might treat it with respect if I'm very clear. One of the things that they do see that we treat kind of with more care and respect are the laptops. So each class has a set of laptops. They're very careful with those because they see how important they are. They recognize that um, they're expensive. They also have lived their lives when they don't get them, when they treat them without respect. And um, so that's one of the very few things that they'll be very careful with. Other things in the classroom that they don't kind of focus on, like books or their own textbooks or their math journal, they'll like have pages ripped out. It'll just be a mess. But the laptops, they do care for because they see the value in it. And God here is showing the people that they should see the value in the things that are used in his worship the way that he does. He gives them very clear instructions. Don't treat these irreverently. Don't just grab them. Don't just throw them in like the wagon. Very clearly how they're to pack and be cared for. He even tells them, if you do not handle these things well, there is punishment for that. You are to have a reverent attitude with my stuff. If you are not treating it well, that is a sin. And that comes with a very stiff penalty. So where did the breakdown happen here? The people clearly knew what God wanted done with his items. This was not hidden knowledge to them. It was given to Moses and that was handed down from priestly family down through itself. This was not unknown. Uzzah seemed to meet the qualifications. He was a Levite. 
He was even a Kohathite. He even, or he had even been around the ark for a very long time as it was at his house for um, several years. All, all Israel took the Lord for granted here. They were not treating him well. That is not a shock to us. If you've read through Judges, uh, you see that the people have this cycle of obedience, blessing, disobedient, cursing, suffering, leading back into um, calling on the Lord for salvation. He covers them. He redeems them again. He brings a judge who then gets them out of that cycle and they go back into being blessed and then they're disobedient again. And this cycle is happening constantly. Judges is replete with that going on. Uh, Nothing changes. Uh, The previous king, Israel's first, um, Saul is disobedient to God, um, is supposed to um, completely wipe out um, a king. And instead of doing what God uh, says to do, he decides to change and think that he knows what God wants. And that costs him his throne. And now David is installed. So the people are used to not being obedient, not taking the Lord seriously, not looking at his holiness as something that they should care for and that they should take very seriously. They had already shown that they misvalued the ark when they used it as their good luck charm in 1 Samuel 4, losing it to the Philistines for a time before the Lord returned it to them. That was that time when they were um, they were battling the Philistines and they were like, get us the ark. Not that they trusted that God was the one to care for them, the one whom the ark was um, focusing them towards or should have been. They looked at the ark themselves as this like, Death Star super laser that they could then use against the Philistines. But then God allowed the Philistines to overcome them. Even as the Philistines saw the ark and heard that it was there and were afraid, um, God allowed them to overcome Israel. Israel flees and the ark goes into uh, Philistine hands. But even in that time, the ark is uh, there with the Philistines. They bring it in like Dagon gets knocked over their false god come back in, Dagon's head is off. They, uh, people start getting tumors. They recognize, we got to get this thing out of here. This is causing us problems. They ship it off to one of the other Philistine cities. Problems are happening there. People are getting tumors. And as this thing moves around, the Philistines recognize, we got to get this thing out of here. This is bad for us. And uh, through God, get the ark returns back to Israel. So they'd even lost the blessing of having the ark. And even that did not cause them to um, to take the Lord's holiness seriously. In 2 Samuel 6, we see that Israel is still sinning against God by not caring for the ark as instructed by him. Even as they get it back, they don't, they don't take it seriously. To us, this might not look like a sin until we realize that God commanded them how to move the holy items. When we are commanded by God, there is no room for us to change that command because we think we have a better way. Our laziness, foolishness, 
uh, bad planning or negligence are just as sinful as if we directly disobeyed God. So thinking we've got a better plan than what God said for us to do is sin. Just as if it said, God, I refuse to do it the way you want me to. I'm going my own path. Both of those things are sin. Our sin earns only one thing from God, death. We are so used to living in a sin-filled world, committing sin, justifying sin, hiding sin, shading our sin, that we can easily lose sight that every sin is antithetical to a God that's holy. We are in a month right now that celebrates sin. You You can't hop on social media or look at a commercial without them celebrating Pride Month. And I'm going to use quotation fingers. We are just encapsulated with sin in this culture. And and even in our own lives, we struggle with our own sin as believers to such a point that we sometimes miss just how holy God is. We look at God as holy. We know he's holy. We know we're not holy. But we don't see just exactly how holy God is and exactly how unholy we are. And that is to our detriment. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Wages are earned. Your sin that you willing that you willingly were a slave to in your former life rightly damned you to both earthly and eternal punishment. You wanted to sin and you could only sin. Uzzah did what he what he was expressly forbidden to do. Being a Levite, being a Kothathite, he would know exactly what his responsibilities were. But because everyone there was not being obedient, he didn't take it seriously. And he did what was expressly forbidden, and he received the punishment that God clearly had laid out and told Moses that would be for touching the holy things of God in an inappropriate way. David did what he was expressly forbidden to do by bringing the ark around in such a way. In this case, Uzzah's sin brought God's judgment immediately upon him in this life. David would have known what the rules were for carrying it. He had priests that would have told him, you have to do it this way. It doesn't even say in the text that the ark was about to fall. It just said that the ox stumbled. But even putting it on a new cart, ooh, it's a new cart. No, that's not what God had directed for them. God said, I've given you acacia poles that are that are overlaid in gold. You are to carry it, but you are not to touch it. Question 17 of the Catechism explains that sin is any transgression of God's law. God is holy. His attribute of holiness flows out from himself. God rightly hates sin because sin strikes directly against the character of God. Sin is the antithesis of God's character. If we do not begin to fathom just how holy God is, we will not be able to understand the answer to tonight's question. We need to see and begin to grasp just how holy God is. That is something that we need to think about. We need to see that God is so much different than us. 
And one of the one of his core things to his being is that he is holy. And I think that if we move into Isaiah, I think we get one a good picture of just how holy God is, and two, just how our response to that holiness should be. So if you're following along in your Bible, would you please turn to Isaiah six? And we'll and we'll camp out here um, for the rest of the sermon. Isaiah six is something that we're probably all very familiar with. Even if you can't remember what it is just by saying Isaiah six, as soon as we start it, you'll be like, ah, yep, I know that. We've heard it before. Sometimes we think, oh, that's so cool. Um, but I want us to really see that even in what we would describe as cool or awesome or beautiful, we should see even more so that that it is a depiction of just how holy our God is. Isaiah 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robes filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So in these first four verses, we see that um, Isaiah is brought into this vision, into the throne room of God. And in the middle, he sees a throne and one who sits on it, who's high and who's lifted up. And around him, these seraphim, these angels that have six wings. Um, and all that they're saying is not the things that God has done or his beauty or his majesty or his greatness or his love. What they're saying is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole world is filled with his glory. That, that they recognize that he is holy. Imagine seeing the God of the universe and these, these angelic beings created just worshiping his holiness. And we see Isaiah's response to that. And I said, not, ah, oh, that's so great. God, you're so amazing. I love you. Because clearly Isaiah did. What, what he said was, woe is me, for I am lost. I think in the New King James Version, it has a nice way of saying it, a poetic version. It says, woe is me, for I am undone. He recognizes not the beauty of God, although God is beautiful, not his power, although God is power. What he recognized was, I am deficient. I am not what God is. I deserve to be to be punished severely, to be cast down, to to be away from this holy God. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
This is one of God's prophets talking about God's chosen people. I am unqualified. I come from a people who are unqualified. And you know what? He's right. He is unqualified, left to his own devices. His the Clearly, the nation of Israel, if you're following along Sunday mornings, hearing about Hosea, clearly the nation of Israel is unqualified if left to its own devices. God's holiness is so integral and important to his character that it's the only attribute spoken about God in the Bible that is repeated three times. We see here in Isaiah 6, 3, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We also see that repetition. We also see that repetition again when the apostle John is brought into the throne room of God in Revelations 4, 8. Paul taught on this on Wednesday. So Adam and Sam, this will sound like review to you guys. I clearly stole from Paul. There we see different creatures declaring God's holiness, stating in verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease in saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Again, we see that repetition of holy, holy, holy. R.C. Sproul's mentions, we do not see mercy, 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 or love, love, love as, as declarations of God's attributes, although God is clearly those as well as holy. When we want to emphasize something today, we might use an emoji or an exclamation point, or if you're like me, five exclamation points, or all caps, or a GIF. But Jews in Isaiah's time and continuing through John's time did not do things that way. They didn't use lots of exclamations or hype. They didn't have emojis and they didn't have gifts. But what they had was repetition. When they wanted you to get something, they'd say it again and again. And here we see both in Isaiah's account and in John's account that the angelic beings that are in the very throne room that God is in are repeating over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It says that they do it without ceasing. Pastor Paul would have made a good Jewish rabbi in this regard. He never forgets to emphasize God's sovereignty in his sermons and or the questions that he guides the youth through on Wednesday night, even to the point where we asked, did Paul ask this question last week? Because he's putting that, that repetition over and over again on God's sovereignty. The same is being done here with God's holiness. Quiet. These angelic beings who are in the very presence of the Lord continuously call out holy, 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 because God is holy. We need to see that too. We are not in the throne room of God with, with these angelic beings seeing it, but these two snapshots that both John in Revelation and Isaiah in his book give us should drive us to have that same view and that same never ceasing attitude towards God's holiness. He cannot abide anything that is unholy. When a person sins, they are actively breaking God's law for how they should live. Before anyone is saved, they can only do evil and only want to do evil. The good 
that they do only comes from a desire for good to be done to them as repayment or they're doing their good because they're afraid of karma or the cosmos getting them back. But for the saved, for the redeemed, we should want to do good and we should not want to sin. We should want to be holy the way that God is holy, striving after his things, being obedient to his commands because we serve and we were bought and purchased by a loving God. We also see man's correct response when faced with God's holiness from Isaiah. Isaiah was correct in verse 5. Upon seeing God's throne room and hearing the declaration of holy, holy, holy from the seraphim, Isaiah immediately recognized the distance between God's holiness and his unholiness. He recognized correctly the punishment that his sin had earned him. He knew he had sinned. He admitted it. He said he was from a whole bunch of people that were sinners and and were completely out of line with what God would have them to do. He knew the punishment for that. Woe is me, for I am lost. He recognized correctly the punishment that this sin had earned him. There was no cry of unfairness or an attempt to hide what was plainly true. Our sin earns punishment. As redeemed, we recognize that our sin rightly condemned us. We earned both physical death and eternal punishment because of our sin. To those who God did not elect, this punishment is handed out. Those that the Father had chosen the Son to save, though, that punishment was put on Christ's shoulders instead of ours. But friend, that punishment for that sin was meted out. If we keep on reading, we see Isaiah receiving the grace that only Christ offers. We move into verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Notice the seraphim's word choice. He said that Isaiah's sin had been atoned. We see that Isaiah will not be the one to pay the debt for his sin. This sin debt was not just erased or ignored. It was paid by another, the God-man Jesus Christ. The same Savior that paid all of your past, present, and future sins paid for Isaiah's sin roughly 700 years before Christ condescended to earth. In conclusion, every sin deserves one thing, death. Friend, if you sit here tonight hearing this and you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, know that your sin was not swept away under a rug. It was not forgotten by a loving God. It was not ignored because God broke the law for love, as Stephen Furtick wrongly claims. You sit in that seat redeemed only because Jesus Christ walked that cross up the hill to Calvary to hang between two thieves to die, be buried, and resurrected on the third day. 
Christ took that full measure of God's wrath for the sins of all God's people. The text says that it pleased the father to crush his son because he because it brought many sons to glory. So those sins that are committed are all accounted for. The sins that you've committed, the sins that have been committed against you, all of it will be paid for. Someone wronged you in major ways or hurt you and you feel like they got away with it. No, they are not going to get away with it. It will be punished on someone's shoulders. It's going to be on one or two people's shoulders, either the Savior or their own. But nothing escapes being judged because God is holy. He demands holiness. He cannot abide unholiness. He can't hide it. He can't ignore it. He can only punish it. And it's going to be put on someone, either his son as propitiation for us or on us. And that's the end. Paul has a better way of like just cutting it off and then moving into a prayer, but I'm not Paul. Just say let's pray. <laughs> I should have. I should have. Right. I will take questions though. If you're in the back and your hands up, I don't see well. So you're either going to have to stand up or call out. Yeah. <laughs> Is he just, John, John looking like an octopus. Or oh, that's a Christian. Sorry. All right. So I will, obviously, clearly I can't see, <laughs> but I will take any questions that you have. I will say yes. <laughs> I think there is because I think people in the in the in the naive desire to try to keep God's holiness and goodness, they sacrifice um, his holiness to punish sin. And they don't want people to be afraid of God because God is love. I I I I think that many American churches are Guilty of that, a bunch of other things.
Yeah, no, I, I, I fully, I'm in agreement with you. And I mean, God disciplines those who he loves. Like, I discipline my kids because I love them. Like, God disciplines his children because he loves them too. And that discipline can be mighty. I'm, I have no idea from the text, and I, I don't know that we could even assert whether Uzzah was saved or unsaved. I know that, like, there's times where you can look at somebody and be like, like, uh, Eli's sons in First Samuel. Clearly, those bros aren't saved. But we don't get anything from the text other than what Uzzah did here. So I, I can't speak to him. But yeah, God could, the penalties that uh, that could be, that chastisement absolutely could be up to death for God's people. Absolutely. And God would remain good and right and holy even in that. That doesn't alter him in any way. He doesn't have, like Nick said this morning, God could punish everyone immediately right now. Send the whole earth to hell and he would have remained good. But amen, he, he sent his son to atone for many. And we get to, we get to be redeemed because God decided to take my sin and put it on his son's shoulders. For sure. Even Paul talks about that. Should we sin so that grace may abound? And then he immediately doesn't leave it up to like, let us decide. He says, may it never be. Like, so like those who look at the New Testament think, oh, God's softened. No, God hasn't softened at all. The New Testament is where Ananias and Sapphira got theirs because they lied. A lie. I mean, we live in America. It's the nation of lies. June is the month of lies. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, 
we don't God does not need us to cover any shortcomings we might think we have. Oh, oh, God's stuff can't touch the ground. God's sovereign. God created all things. If he wants his ark to touch the ground, it'll touch the ground. But God was Uzzah Uzzah would know his responsibilities. I just he was he was of that tribe, of that clan, given the direct responsibility to care for those things. There should be there was no not knowing. It was they had cheapened God and used him as a good luck charm or a prop rather than viewing him as creator and being faithful and obedient to him. I thought it was a really good uh, connection that you made, noticing that uh, Uzzah was the son of Abinadab, and the ark had been stored at Abinadab's father's house for a while then. Yeah. So he had a familiarity with the ark, and I think that's a good warning to us that as people who experience the grace and the mercy of God, that we're exposed a lot to a God who we can sometimes grow really comfortable with that. And when you're exposed to things, sometimes you stop letting them have the power. You, you sometimes will hear about somebody who's keeping like a tiger for a pet or something, or a chimp for a pet, and they, they grow real like familiar with the power of that animal, and they start to take that for granted, that they're going to be safer on that animal. And then one day that animal's like, oh, by the way, I'm a wild animal. It just decides to maul that owner. They, they forget, you know, and they, they start to think about it the wrong way. God is in no way a wild animal, but he has a power that we ought not take for granted. Even if we've been grown up in his house, even if we've been exposed to his mercy and his kindness and his grace, and we've seen that flow out into our lives, we shouldn't take that in a mistaken way and think that, oh, God likes me. I'm his favorite, so he's not going to hurt me. And and then treat him with disrespect because when we disrespect the Lord, we deserve, if we're his child, to be chastised. For sure. Which is a good call for us to be in his word because that shows us his his holiness, his power, his reverence, and his willingness to punish sin and to chastise his own children.
determined that God had given all the instructions and he wanted them to be followed exactly as he prescribed. He is aware that with man, uh, give an inch and they take a mile, the slippery slope, things like that. Um, God knows better than anyone that his holiness must be upheld if he sees things like uh, I think it was Scroll that said through moving fingers where you choose to just it's like looking the other way I, I, I am deciding not to see that you can't do that in that his righteousness, his holiness, would not allow him to, to look the other way and pretend that he didn't see that. Yeah. You and I can do that, but he can't. I cannot see things very easily. <laughs> but that's the thing. We, you know, what we can do, um, that's, that's not a godly thing, the, the way we to look the other way and ignore the sin or set it aside or, or I just don't want to get involved in that. And, uh, God's just in his perfection and his holiness is not, he's not capable of ignoring sin. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great example of what was so bad about that Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they did something that was, you know, obviously they were, you know, like blatantly lying. There was nothing noble about what they were doing. So, you know, it sure had a, uh, let's say, less sympathy for them. It's like, you know, we lie, and if God smoked me, then I lied, that, well, you know, I wouldn't have made it past five or three or whatever. You know, it seems like. But this, the, the passage with Uzzah to me is a great passage to me to demonstrate that God must maintain his holiness even when it is something that, you know, most of us would have done just reflexively. And even that's, I, I mean, even that's a strike at the problem because even it, even that that's a reflective, I don't want it to fall. I'm going to grab it. Like God had even provided provision for that by the, by the method that it was to be carried. And it's just, Uza probably was doing it out of noble cause. Ananias and Sapphira, they did what they did out of ignoble desires, but both led, both of those things led to all of their deaths because they were, they were sinning, and sin has a terrible price, and it's going to be paid by someone. It's either going to be paid on our own shoulders, or it's going to be paid on another shoulder. And amen, hallelujah, for the fact that Jesus Christ took what I what I should rightly earned and put it on His own shoulders.
That's fine. Go. I, you guys fight amongst yourselves. Just... Yeah, for for those that are saved, Jesus Christ paid paid that sin for us, and that should that should cause us to really take stock of just how just how seriously a holy God takes sin. That the fact that it took the death of God's own Son to redeem us, Brendan. Um, Do you believe that, uh, um, like Paul, like we have this one Noah, we have Uzzah dying, and then we have the earth being split into like these mass casualties or rebellion or disobeying God? Is that different than how it's done to how God acts today? Even though he's done the same holy standard, that he doesn't like commit such like huge death toll like he did in the Old Testament. We have the same Old Testament and Um. I I think that I think we're in a different covenant than when like Korah's rebellion happened. Um, God was dealing with His people in a theocracy. They had made a, a specific covenant with Him, um, so God was disciplining them um, how He saw fit. I still think that God disciplines and punishes today how He sees fit. Um, we don't see the same style of punishment but that but again that doesn't mean that all sin isn't being punished um and then with noah again a different a different um god had that judgment for those people um if you let them all live to be what 250 at the time or 600 and then they died of old age and then they were sent to hell would that be any different than if he just flooded the earth and punished everybody then no i don't think so um other than that i i I know that god punishes all sin and he might not do it in one big swath where twenty thousand people get swallowed up but every sin does get punished so in that regard he stays consistent and isn't changed in in any ways based on old testament new testament steven you know, as we read the New Testament, we look at those, some of those grand judgments. They don't touch all of them, but they look at some of them. And some of them, 
So sometimes we think that it's not happening, but first of all, you know, we don't know what's happening everywhere either, right? So it's not like you know we can we can say without 100% that mountains is not flooding water again because the promise is with us. But you know, uh, and you know, maybe he's not opening the earth up, but you know, we have massive floods that wipe people out. I mean, it, it seems different because all oh, is like, oh, we attributed all oh, just a natural disaster. But I mean. Somebody might have looked at that. Oh, it was just an earthquake and the land cracked open and these people happened to fall in. I mean, we don't really know. God told us specifically it was just Yeah, God God let those people right. know. I was gonna add more reason saying too, and I think that's a good observation that God in no way in the new covenant has to put aside his right to judge in massive ways like that. We still can do that. The difference is that we don't have the special revelation to be able to say the definitive word that this is why God did this in this time for this purpose to display us. I think it'll be interesting to look back at history once we get into glory and have the Lord explain to us how certain things were done in such a way to propagate his will and to move the culture the way that he wanted to or to, to, to bring a, a, a correction in the world that needed to happen. We just don't know that now because the special revelation is not revealing that to us. But, but God is certainly using all things to work together for his good and to his glory. Um, yeah, and I think there probably are instances today where there are large crises that happen as a means of God making his will be done in the world. Um, he hasn't put that to the side. We just don't see it. We don't understand it as well as we did before. Yeah, the dots have not been connected for us. Uh, scripture that can show us why. Right, right. Yeah. The Amplified clearly tells us that Jesus is glorious, so he's saying yes, Brendan and then Nick. Yeah. Oh, okay.
I've thought about that a little bit. Um, I think that everybody, if, if brought into that same spot, everyone would have that same view. I think, I think now you, me, John, Nick, Tanya, Christine, all of us would have that same view. And then my hope is that believers would recognize the moment after that. It wouldn't have to take for the seraphim to come and say that we're atoned, that we would recognize apart from what Christ did for us, we, yeah, like he could rightly say, I'm undone. Woe is me. But for the believer, you would say that you would just have to. God's holiness is so apart and so different from us as sinful falling beings that, yeah, you, that's the only right response. But then immediately we should be looking to Christ of, yeah, that is the right response. But Christ paid for my, paid for my sin. Joshua was told that. Yeah, Revelation Joshua was told that. So, so I think the right attitude to have is you know, the default is a holy reverence and fear to him. And if he tells you to relax, then you need to relax. But I think we're in error if we think, yeah, when we say that some boldly I approach your throne, we say that with also a sense of awe and reverence. It's amazing that I can even come to the throne of God. I don't think it means we just like waltz into God's throne room and say, hey, Dad, what's up? I need this, I need that, and start acting like he's a peer. Like, that's, that's never going to be appropriate. But I think there is a sense of peace and rest we can have in the world. It's not only the sense of experience of him, but it's because he's set in our hearts of him. It's not because we've earned something or we have like a equality. And if we don't do that, we have, we're have we in the same danger that uh, Uzzah was in because we cheapen God and we we forget to have that that proper reverence for him and we put ourselves in that same danger nick you're next that's a good question uh the question i had is it seems that the catechism question here makes something of a distinction between wrath and curse and so i was wondering if you wanted to elaborate a little bit on the difference between what wrath is and what curse is are those two separate things or is there sort of a shade for one to the other that yeah i look them two distinct yeah i looked at curse as like back to the garden back to genesis 3 like our sin we were cursed because of that like we're going to toil women are going to stress and labor women are going to want to like have their the position of their husband i looked at that the wrath was the punishment that was going to come in that next life like on judgment day was where you're that god's righteous wrath for your sin where you would be damned to hell was going to be meted out. Yeah, I, That's I, how I looked at it. I think I'm going to see it in a similar way. I think the wrath has to do with like direct punishment consequence of sin and the, the anger of God against sin being poured out in a tangible way. But I think curse probably has to do more with the relationship damage that comes when you walk away from him. You're apart from his, his grace, his abiding love. So those things are both serious and should both be terrifying to us. The idea of God's wrath is not the only terrifying thing. The idea that you might go to hell forever, but also
also we should come, especially as Christians, to just be terrified of the idea of our Father uh, not being near to us. And if we're walking in disobedience or being flippant like Lizzo was, then we're not near to him like we should be. Now, he's not our Father anymore, but all of us have upset our Father in a sense that the relationship's not what it can be. Yeah. So there should be a fear in that regard that we don't want that. We want to be close to our Father. We want to be near to him in every capacity. So to not even be on good terms with him, even though he's still our Father, that should be terrifying to us too. For sure. Absolutely. Brendan. Josh. Josh, are you putting your hand up like this, bro? I'm legally blind, bro. You got to get that hand up. Do this if you got to. <laughs> Why does if if God? Let me make sure I have your question. If He's so against sin, why does He allow His people to sin? I think ultimately it goes back to His glory, um, His glory that God God will allow us to go through things because it builds in our sanctification. For for a believer, when I sin and I have to go back to to God and apologize and seek his forgiveness, it I am drawing back near to him. Just like Nick was saying about the fear of being away, when you come back to your father and you're apologizing for, I sinned, I've been doing X, or I've been thinking Y, or I've been harboring Z, I need you to, to do this. I need you to forgive me. Take this from me. It's it's turning back to God and putting our faith that he's going to lead us. He's going to take care of us. It's us recognizing our position with him as creator, us as creation, him as father, us as child. And it should, it should, it should drive our repentance. I think it, I think that it's there for that. Please. Thank you. 
We also have to be a little bit uh, realistic with ourselves too, because often I think we kind of in our mind say, "Oh God, why are you taking this away from me?" And He's like, "I've given you the means of grace. You know, you've got the Word, you've got the truth, you've got a church that loves you, you've got people who can keep you accountable and pray for you. And yet, are you really walking away from that sin, or are you just kind of halfway clinging onto it and hoping the Lord will just take it away from you? Mm-hmm. Just repent of it, and you know, I've, I've given you the means by which this thing can be." this thorn in his side, and he asked for it to be removed. Why wouldn't God remove it? Would we glorify God more if I never sinned again like this? And and we don't know the answer to that question. God is glorified even when, as we fall, he wipes that sin away again and brings you back as a a child that he loves and is faithful to, even though you're not faithful to him. And and his his grace is sufficient to us in this time. His power is made perfect even in our weakness. So, we know the promises that there will be a day of glorification. And it's presumptuous for us to say, well, why don't we get glorification now? You know? He's granted us this great covenant promise that it will all be removed and we'll never struggle with it again in glory. But it's not time for that. So he's going to use now to do what he purposed to do. And, and part of that is the battle and struggle and the proof to us that we'll meet him again and again and the need to abide. So praise God for the now and be thankful for the station he's put us in but also look forward in anticipation of that day when you're never going to have to struggle against that thing again. It's going to be once and for all passed away again. Absolutely. Um, I was actually going to bring up that Yeah, I can. I am too. <laughs> um, 
Every time you're putting it on Christ and you're working and your your desire is to not do it again? Yeah. Okay. Do. Okay. Give me the question. How many times will it be before God will forgive it again? None. <laughs> yeah. None. Yeah. Tell tell you're dead. Like, like everyone in this room harbors some sort or multiple sins that are constantly alluring i always want to be in control of all things like nick will tell you that i want to have ultimate control over all things at all times that's why i'm a teacher because i have all the power (laughs) (laughs) so i think yeah no john's absolutely right but yes yeah so many things recently have been exactly how much i don't have that and how much i need to ask god for mercy and forgiveness and take this desire out of me because I want at all times to grab onto it. And every time I try to, it never comes to it and it's sin all the time. And I have to go back and, and ask for forgiveness again. And there's times where I'm successful. Nick will tell you that too. And there's times where I'm not. Nick will tell you that also. Yeah. But what did Paul say? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And I don't do the things that I ought to do. Because, yeah. There is a flip side to that, of course, Christine. If somebody is only repenting and word, like they don't really, they're just, they think of God as their get out of jail free card. Yeah. And they think that they've got license to just keep going back to their sin. There's not really a battle going on there at all. Then that can be proof that, that a person's not really saved. So if someone doesn't have the grief, if the shame is not there, if they, they're not grieved over their constant loss, then that's a pretty good indicator that perhaps that person doesn't have the Holy Spirit, that they don't have a true faith in the Lord, where he is actually their king. Rather, they're just playing lip service to him. So there is a sense in which the Bible tells us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, to be humble before the Lord in that. You don't want to just think, oh, grace is so great, and then just run out in the world and do whatever you want and just say, he'll forgive me a million times. That forgiveness is there for a true child of God, but those who take the Lord for granted and break his law constantly, and there's no repentance there, is that really a child of God? So, No, why would he do that if he told Peter to forgive his neighbor 70 times, 7 times? As many times as necessary. As long as there is a in Christ pay for this, right? It's like, I mean, if, if you're his, he paid for all your sin. So if you keep doing the same one over and over again, I mean, I agree with Nick, if, if we're not repentant, then we prove to be maybe not children of God, right? But if Christ has paid for our sins, right, he, he paid for that one too. So it's never going to come to a point where he's like, I, you know, I paid for the first 70, but this 70th one, that's on you. You, you got to do it yourself. How powerful is the cross, essentially? Is it powerful enough to cover every sin? Is it powerful enough to cover heinous sin? Is it powerful enough to cover repeated sin? It's powerful enough. Through Christ, it's all, it's all washed away. He doesn't just give you an account and say, okay, 
Once this is completed, my grace is done. You know, it's grace is, there's no limit to this. Yeah. The minute you stand and don't go before him, then that's when Anybody else? Josh, if your hands... Oh, Josh already left. <laughs> Scared him away. All right. Well, if there's no other questions, let me pray, and you guys are free to go if you guys want to hang out and chit-chat for... Okay. Is this a troll question or a real question? Is this a troll question or a real question? Okay. Ask away. If it's not a troll question, you're more than welcome to ask. Me personally? Okay. Somebody sins against you so terrible. What did you do? Okay. Is it a sin to pray that that person did not go to God and ask God to forgive them? So is it a sin? Yes. Is it a sin to feel that way? Yes. Would you uh, maybe flip it around? Do you think that if you would wrong someone in that way, that that would be okay for them to do that to you? Mm -hmm. You got your answer. It's it's a prideful thing to take on that power, like you desire to be able to control uh, with that kind of power to basically toast somebody. Like look at Jonah. I think Jonah, the book of Jonah is a good example of of that exact kind of thing. Jonah did not want the Ninevites to be saved. He, he wanted them to not be saved in such a way that he was like, I'm going to be super disobedient and go directly 180 degrees in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Because I don't want you, I, I don't even want to give them the message that God's going to judge them because they might actually repent and God is faithful and will forgive them and I don't want them to be forgiven. So I'm going to go the opposite way. And God still made, God still brought Nineveh to repentance by Jonah's words because God did what God did through chapters two and three. So but the person feels that way. Do they need to repent? Yes. Yeah, Jonah needed to. Like, if you read Jonah and you read chapter four, I don't think that it leads Jonah in a good light. Um, But yes, absolutely. For sure. What you're saying is God's grace and Christ's death on the cross is good enough for me, but I will be damned if you get it. And that's wrong. Yeah, that's good too. Thank you. All right. All right, and with that, I will close this in prayer. (laughs) You've exhausted your two. (laughs) Father God, we thank you for this evening, Lord. And if nothing else tonight, Lord, um, your holiness was hopefully put on a higher pedestal in all of our hearts, God. we are not you. You are completely um, holy and righteous in all ways, Father. Um, the mere fact that you did not eliminate mankind 
um, due to sin is, is just a testament to your mercy and your love, Father. Um, God, protect everyone here tonight. Lord, those who are sick, God, please be with them tonight. Give doctors wisdom, especially for uh, Sandy and Ruth and Cameron. Uh, God, please um, please heal them. Please be with their families. Please buoy their spirits, God. Um, even as they go through this trial and their bodies are, are in various stages of suffering, God, we know that you remain true and faithful. Father, we love you so much. Amen.